the year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Forgotten TV is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. Or buy me a coffee using the link in the show notes. This episode of Forgotten TV was executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, Joshua Driscoll, K.L. Young, Kenny Siegel, and Tony Cook. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. The year was 1856. Quarry workers cutting limestone in Feldhofer Cave in the Neander Valley of what is now Germany made a discovery that changed our understanding of paleontology. However, at the moment of discovery, the workers paid the bones they had just uncovered no mind. The mine owner later saw the bones and collected them. The workers may have uncovered a complete skeleton, but it was heavily damaged during the digging process, and only the larger bone fragments were collected. Among the pieces gathered were a skull cap, two femora, three bones from the right arm, two from the left arm, part of the left ilium, fragments of a scapula, and rib fragments. Thinking these were the bones of bears, the pieces were given to nature scientist Johann Karl Fulrot. Realizing they were from no bear, Fulrot enlisted the aid of Hermann Schaffhausen, a professor of anatomy teaching in Bonn. The following year, Schaffhausen publicly announced the discovery of the remains of an extinct prehistoric species of human, that of Homo neanderthalensis, the Neanderthal man. In his paper from that year, he posited the skeletal remains were that of a savage and barbarous race of ancient human. What does science now tell us about this species? Along with Denisovans, Neanderthals were a cousin of Homo sapiens. 
a hominid species that lived from 40,000 to as much as 400,000 years ago in a patch of Eurasia that stretched from Europe's Atlantic coast to Central Asia. Their bodies were shorter and stockier than modern humans, with broad chests and bulky torsos. Their faces featured large, high-bridged noses with a larger nasal chamber than humans, which served to warm the air. But far from being the savage and barbarous race characterized by Schaffhausen, archaeological evidence suggests they had a relatively sophisticated culture. They built shelters, made and wore clothing, and created tools not only out of stone, but from bone as well. Evidence suggests that at least some Neanderthals knew how to make rope, and we know they were using colored pigments to decorate objects, such as shells or possibly even their own bodies. They thus may be the creators of the world's oldest cave art, found in the El Castillo Cave in Spain. Brunichel Cave in southwestern France contains evidence of their activities in the form of hundreds of intentionally broken stalagmites, arranged into two large ellipsoid structures, along with several smaller stacks. The purpose of these? Unknown. They are also believed to be the first humans to bury their dead. Whether Neanderthals were killed off or outcompeted by Homo sapiens, they did disappear from the Earth less than 40,000 years ago. However, some Neanderthals, along with Denisovans, evidently interbred with the Homo sapiens, which may explain why measurable amounts of Denisovan and Neanderthal DNA can still be found in the modern human gene pool. Denisovan DNA makes up some 4-6% to of modern New Guinean and Bougainville Islander genomes, while most people of European or Asian descent have 1.5-2% Neanderthal genes in their DNA. Early depictions in fiction such as J.H. Rosny's The Quest for Fire from 1911 and H.G. Wells' The Grizzly Folk from 1927 had Neanderthals as barbarous, slouching, club-wielding primitives, inspired by the work of French paleontologist Marseillaine Boulle. William Golding's 1955 novel The Inheritors benefited from more recent research and presented them as more emotional and civilized. However, Schaffhausen's and Boulle's descriptions had taken hold, and the pop culture concept of the caveman evolved. The first film featuring this archetype was likely D.W. Griffith's 1912 work, Man's Genesis, which tells the tale of the caveman, Weak Hands, developing the first weapon to save his love, Lily White, from brute force. Yes, the caveman were fighting over a woman, something that was repeated in 1923's Three Ages with Buster Keaton, which was also the birth of the concept of the caveman dragging off his new mate by her hair, a trope endlessly recycled over the decades in newspaper cartoons, a crude joke we've been laughing at now for 100 years. 
1932, the syndicated comic strip Alley Oop began entertaining readers with its characters set in the Bone Age, where the titular character rode his dinosaur, Denny, carried a stone axe, and wore a fur loincloth. In 1953's The Neanderthal Man, a serum transforms Professor Clifford Groves, regressing him into a Neanderthal, in a variation on the Jekyll and Hyde story. Roger Corman's Teenage Caveman in 1958 presented a 25-year-old Robert Vaughn as the title character, challenging the status quo of his day in daring to travel beyond the permitted tribal boundaries which reveals a shocking truth about their reality. And yes, there was 1962's Ega with Richard Keel, later immortalized by Mystery Science Theater 3000, the Hammer Films' Cave Girl trilogy of the late 1960s, One Million Years B.C. with Raquel Welch, followed by Prehistoric Women and 1970's When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, Carl Gottlieb's slapstick Caveman in 1981, the far more serious Quest for Fire, also from 1981, and 1984's Iceman. But before all those, Hanna-Barbera gave us that modern Stone Age family, the Flintstones. The then-named HB Enterprises, formed by the animation director team of William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, was one of the first providers of new animated content for television. Their first effort, debuting in December 1957, was both their first regular series and among the very first animated shows on Saturday morning TV. Get set, get ready, here comes rough and ready. They're tough but steady, always rough and ready. They sometimes have their little spats, even fight like dogs and cats. But when they need each other, that's when they're rough and ready. The Rough and Ready Show joined Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll on Saturday morning at a time when the schedule was full of live-action shows like Howdy Doody, Captain Kangaroo, and reruns of Circus Boy. For a more complete backstory of Saturday Morning Network TV, dial back your podcast player to episode 53. While their subsequent series, The Quick Draw McGraw Show, and The Huckleberry Hound Show found success in TV syndication, John Mitchell, sales rep for the renamed Hanna-Barbera Productions, was intent on selling an animated series into primetime network TV. Bill, it's Joe. We had a call from Mitchell again. He's on fire with this idea of trying to get one of our shows on primetime. 
while virtually all previous cartoon characters had been of the funny animal variety, Hannah and Barbara felt the main characters would need to be people to get any new animated show into primetime TV. Early on, it was decided to imitate a family sitcom. But what would be the setting, the character angle? After several concept sketches, artist Dan Gordon set them in the direction they ended up pursuing. From Bill Hanna's book, A Cast of Friends. The drawing depicted two characters, dressed in caveman skins, along with a primitive phonograph that consisted of a little bird with a sharp beak on a stone record. It was an historic moment, or rather, more precisely, a prehistoric one. When we saw Dan's drawing, I think we all recognized the gag potential of a cartoon show that burlesqued modern conveniences as we knew them in 1960, and adapting them to the Stone Age. This was the birth of the endless gags we now associate with the Flintstones. Airing at 8.30 p.m., 7.30 Central, Fridays on ABC, sandwiched between Harrigan and Son and 77 Sunset Strip, The Flintstones became the first primetime animated series, debuting September 30, 1960, beating The Bugs Bunny Show to air by 11 days. The series was designed to appeal to both children and adults, and even casual viewers could see it was a thinly-veiled version of The Honeymooners, comically adapted to prehistoric times. The original series ran in primetime for six seasons, but revival series and repackaged versions of the show aired on Saturday mornings well into the late 1980s. Soon, the Jetsons, that space-age counterpart to the Flintstones, joined them in prime time, and Hanna-Barbera continued to add to their library over the 1960s with characters like Yogi Bear, Magilla Gorilla, Johnny Quest, Frankenstein Jr. and the Impossibles, Space Ghost, Birdman, the Herculoids, Shazam, and others as they rode the trends of Saturday morning network TV programming. One of these Saturday morning trends in the early 1970s was a return to live-action programs, sprinkled throughout a morning now dominated by cartoons. This trend was typified by content from Sid and Marty Croft, such as H.R. Puffin Stuff, The Bugaloos, Lidsville, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters, and by 1974, Hanna-Barbera chose to join the game by offering their first live-action series, Korg, 70,000 B.C. Before we look at the episode rundown, you'll notice I will be considering these in a different order than what you typically find for the series from what are considered authoritative online sources. Korg 70,000 B.C. aired 16 episodes from September 7th to December 21st, 1974, then went into repeats. When IMDb first started listing TV series in 2003, the entry for Korg correctly cited 16 episodes, but had no list, and the same was also true on Wikipedia. The first time any episode list made it to the internet was in 2012, when it was added to the Hanna-Barbera fandom wiki, 
although I don't know where they got their incorrect episode order from. TV researcher John Kenneth Muir first started reviewing episodes in early 2015 in the correct air date order from the DVD. The specious episodes and widely distributed incorrect episode order have their origin in a list added to Wikipedia by user Mo1610 in September of 2015. Mo1610 listed 19 episodes, with three specious episodes inexplicably added at the end. In 2017, this fallacious episode count and episode order migrated over to IMDb. The three additional episodes widely listed are actually duplicates out of the existing 16, and I'll call them out as we come to them. Back in 1974, the following series description was released to newspapers. Live-action drama depicting the struggle of survival of a family in the Neanderthal era. Youngsters will share the primitive discoveries of Korg and his family of five as they make their way in a world where the unknown was never more than a few hundred feet away. Whether they're learning how to protect their life-giving fire, encountering strange animals who share their land, or coping with the hardships of changing seasons, Korg and his family will be a weekly source of fascination. The American Museum of Natural History and the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History will act as resource consultants to the program, ensuring that life in the Neanderthal period is reflected as accurately as current knowledge makes possible. The DVD, released in 2012, offers this official synopsis. A plaintive hunting horn, heard over a ruddy sunrise, signaled the start of something different on Saturday mornings in the mid-70s. Clan Korg had arrived to take kids, and kids at heart, on a series of live-action anthropological adventures across the dangerous terrain of prehistory. Aided by consultants from both New York's American Museum of Natural History and the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, Korg ditched battling dinos and discovering fire for a more mature focus on the dawn of cooperation and compassion amongst our Neanderthal brethren, as personified by its pre-nuclear family. Korg is the patriarch of the clan, which includes Mara, his mate, Bach, Korg's younger brother, and Korg's three offspring, Tana, 15, Re, 12, and Tar, 11. Together, they brave opposing tribes, cave bears, and fire, while discovering the roots of art, diplomacy, and commerce in the world of 70,000 B.C. Burgess Meredith narrates. Now, let's discuss Hanna-Barbera's other Stone Age family, Korg, 70,000 B.C. Trapped. Air date September 7, 1974. In the process of using a log to teach young Tor the art of throwing stones to hunt small game, Tor and Tane accidentally discover a new use for the log. While Tor and Re are outside busy with the just-invented game of Seesaw, an earthquake traps the rest of the clan inside the cave. It's up to Tor and Re to use the newly discovered principle of the lever to move a boulder to free the trapped family members. 
we begin to see the family dynamic in this first episode. Contrary to the description on the DVD, it is clear that the girl, Re, is depicted as being the youngest child, aged 11, while Tor is her slightly older brother at age 12, and Tane is an older teen boy who already goes on hunts with Korg and Bach. I believe the people at Warner switched the ages of Tor and Re on the DVD back cover, as well as misspelled the names of the two boys. Press releases at the time clearly indicate the correct names of the characters and ages as I describe here. Dialogue also informs the viewer of other clans, such as the Hill People, who we will meet five episodes later. Episode written by Willie Gilbert. Born William Gomberg in Cleveland, Ohio, Gilbert wrote for his high school newspaper, The Glenville Torch, alongside future playwright and screenwriter, Jerome Lawrence, known for Inherit the Wind and Auntie Mame, made into a 1974 film with Lucille Ball. Two of his other classmates and torch writers were none other than Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, who would create legendary comics character Superman, which rivals the likes of Sherlock Holmes, Mickey Mouse, or James Bond as one of the most recognizable fictional characters of all time. As an adult, Gilbert pursued a career as a comedian, then partnered with his urologist, Jack Weinstock, writing skits for nightclub performers and Broadway shows. They made their way into writing for early television on Captain Video and his Video Rangers, Tom Corbett Space Cadet, and The Howdy Doody Show. During these years, Gilbert was the typist, living in a hotel and hanging around with showgirls wearing his dapper 50s zoot suit. Jack was the jokester who played up his medical background, telling stories about his famous patients with their problems below the belt. The pair were known for their very New York-centric humor on Howdy Doody, and Gilbert is one of the four people credited with writing the lyrics to Howdy Doody's famous theme song. After writing Broadway shows in the 1960s, Gilbert began writing for Hanna-Barbera on Scooby-Doo, The Super Friends, The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan, and other shows. His final project was Yogi's First Christmas just before his death in 1980, at age 64. The Guide, air date September 14th. Out gathering firewood, Tor encounters a blinded hunter of another clan, who forces him to be his guide. When Korg and Bach catch up to them, instead of killing the hunter, Korg shows the advanced trait of mercy and sees him back to his own camp. Written by Maurice Tomregel. Guest star Frank Christie, a tough guy character actor from 70s film and TV. He had a minor role in The Godfather and had a brief stint on Days of Our Lives in 1980. In July 1982, he was shot to death, getting out of his car outside his North Hollywood home. Looking into Christie's death quickly turns into a rabbit hole but here are the highlights. The 52-year-old had been killed the same month as acquaintances Frank Saletri, an attorney and movie producer also shot inside his house, used for the 1973 film Blackenstein, 
as well as actor Vic Morrow, killed on the set of the Twilight Zone movie in a helicopter stunt gone wrong. Investigators initially considered the possibility that the murders of Celetri and Christie were related, but they were determined to be coincidental. Eleven years later, it was revealed Christie's death was the result of a hit put out on him, the result of a love triangle gone wrong. In 1993, three safecrackers turned hitmen were charged with the murder, as was one Norman Friedberg, who allegedly hired them after warning Christie to stay away from his girlfriend. The cases dragged on, and Friedberg got a retrial in 1995, a result of a hung jury. Two of the three accused hitmen, Ronald Coe and Alan Betts, also filed for a retrial, because after their trial, key witness and admitted mafia enforcer Anthony Fiato emerged from hiding a relationship with, drumroll please, the sister of Nicole Brown Simpson. Yes, it turns out Fiato was also a key witness in the O.J. Simpson trial and allegedly had been approached first by Friedberg to conduct the hit on Christie. Details about the relationship supposedly contradicted claims made by the prosecution during Coe and Betts' trial. I'll stop here, but the entire convoluted story was profiled on an episode of America's Most Wanted. Back to the episode. This was the first story where we spend significant time with Tor, no longer a child but not yet a man, beginning to show the capabilities of adult reasoning here. He realizes that if brought to another clan, they would be unwilling to allow him to return home. Even so, when he has a chance to escape, Tor takes pity on the strange hunter and helps him out of the river so he doesn't drown, and likely heavily influenced Korg's decision to not kill him. Here we see our first of several location visits to the L.A. County Arboretum, which I'll expand on later. Promotional photos were taken during production here with Frank Christie, Charles Morteo, Jim Melinda, and Bill Ewing, posing in front of the very distinct-looking Mayberg Waterfall, which dumps 48,000 gallons of water per hour into the koi pond below, which is also quite noticeable in the episode. Also visible is Baldwin Lake, the main body of water at the Arboretum. And yes, this is the first of three episodes renamed and duplicated in online episode guides under the title, The Blind Hunter. The Exile, air date September 21st. When Korg kills a woodpecker by mistake, a string of subsequent unrelated events convinces him that unseen spirits have cursed him and he leaves in a self-imposed exile. When the clan again hears a woodpecker, this is taken as a sign, and Bach and Tane go out to find Korg. Written by Lynn Jansen and Chuck Minville. The two had worked together starting in the early 1960s on Dr. Kildare. In 1967, they both worked as animators on Disney's The Jungle Book as well as produced an Oscar-nominated short film called Stop, Look, and Listen, 
which depicts motorists puttering about on roadways without vehicles that you've very likely seen clips of. Throughout the 70s and 80s, they wrote for numerous Filmation and Hanna-Barbera shows. Menville left us in 1992, while Jansen went on to create the Sonic the Hedgehog series for Deke Entertainment and ABC, and is since retired. Here we have our first episode dealing with superstition, as Korg interprets everyday happenings as signs from the unseen spirit, leading him to a decision that doesn't benefit anyone. The Running Fight, air date September 28th. Tracking footprints from another clan, Bach is bitten by a huge spider. The venom makes him delirious, to where he doesn't even recognize his own family, which makes efforts to help him difficult, if not outright dangerous. Written by Oliver Crawford, whose credits go back to 1950 on shows Stars Over Hollywood and The Stu Irwin Show. However, in 1953, he was called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee investigating suspected communist sympathizers in Hollywood. Refusing to name any fellow entertainment industry professionals, he was blacklisted. He moved to New York City with his family, where he took different jobs, such as designing window displays. He ended up being one of the few writers able to return to television, and ended up writing for many shows, including The Outer Limits, The Fugitive, Bonanza, and Star Trek. His 1978 novel, The Execution, revolving around five female Holocaust survivors who recognize a Nazi doctor in modern-day San Diego, was adapted into a TV movie in 1985. And here we have the first appearance of the very distinctive Vasquez Rocks, used several times as a filming location for episodes. Magic Claws, air date October 5th. While hunting a bear, Bach slips and suffers a minor injury, and the bear gets away. However, Bach's hunting defeat has made him hesitant and fearful. Korg has a nighttime vision from the Great Unseen Spirit, with instructions to hunt the bear down and use its claws as a talisman to get Bach's mojo back. Written by Dick Robbins, known for 1967's Spider-Man and 1973's Super Friends. And he would later work on The Croft Super Show, writing many of the Electra Woman and Dyna Girl segments, and developing the concepts for Wonderbug and 1978's Godzilla. Another visit to Vasquez Rocks and yet another bad week for Bach. A stunt performer in a bear costume was used for all the hunting scenes, the effect of which ranged from not terrible for Saturday morning TV to highly obvious and unconvincing. We also deal for the second time with the topic of superstitious belief, and the episode ended insinuating that Korg made up his vision in order to bring the clan back to the status quo. This is the second of the three renamed and duplicated episodes in online guides under the title, Bach Loses Courage. The Hill People, air date October 12th. The clan known as the Hill People have lost one of their hunters and hold a burial for him. 
Bach is interested in taking the dead hunter's mate, Sala, as his own. But this creates an issue, since the dead hunter's brother, Jared, has a claim on her according to tradition. When Jared demands an outrageous payment for Sala, this threatens war between the two clans. To avoid bloodshed, Sala reluctantly goes to be with Jared. After five weeks of fairly simple plots revolving around basic survival, here we have the most complicated and best story yet, as writer Fred Freiberger tells a tale that has likely happened countless times over history. Widow inheritance is the cultural practice whereby a widow is required to marry a male relative of her late husband, often his brother. This had the potential of being a positive for the widow and any children, ensuring that they were provided for, but it obviously also could lead to misery, depending on the disposition of the people involved. The practice also served to keep property and wealth in the same family line. Here, Sala was obligated to allow Jared to take her as mate, even though she did not wish it, as he was a boorish, possibly even abusive man. Having little say in the matter, as her choices were to either be with Jared, be banished to the wilderness, or allow the clans to go to war, she chose the well-being of all, over her own feelings. The story ended with Bach standing alone as the camera drew back to emphasize his loss. Quite a bit of storytelling for a Saturday morning show. Our guest stars were character actress Eileen Dietz as Sala. She had just appeared in The Exorcist as the face of the demon possessing young Reagan. This led to a long career of appearing in horror films, and she is still quite active. Arthur Batonides was the crude Jared, although he's been in quite a long list of film and TV. You might recognize him as Lieutenant Diamato from the Star Trek episode That Which Survives, in which Korg actress Naomi Pollock also appeared. Bob Klein was Hill People Chief Lorik, a supporting actor in TV westerns going back to 1956. The highly recognizable Franklin Canyon Reservoir was used as filming location here. Known as the most famous lake on television, the reservoir was seen on The Andy Griffith Show, The Rifleman, The Brady Bunch, Green Acres, Bonanza, Mannix, and Star Trek episode The Paradise Syndrome which was yet another episode where Naomi Pollock also appeared. The reservoir has also been seen in numerous films over the decades. Part of a public municipal park, fishing and swimming in the lake are not permitted, and actor Charles Morteo recalls there were rangers present to make sure the actors didn't even touch the water. The Eclipse of the Sun, air date October 19th. During the evening by the campfire, Ree is bitten by a snake. To cure her fever, Tane and Tor set out in search of Kuba Root and encounter an old man who tells them to look in the Valley of Voices. While there, a total solar eclipse frightens and fascinates all. Written by Ian Martin, the Scottish 1950s actor-turned-writer penned over 200 episodes of NBC daytime drama The Doctors, 
and nearly 200 of Canadian supernatural soap Strange Paradise, both in the 1960s. He also appeared on segments of Electra Woman and Dina Girl and wrote an episode of Land of the Lost. Guest star Bill McLean. The Valley of Voices, where Tain and Tor encountered echoes, was none other than Vasquez Rocks, which countless films and TV shows have used as a shooting location, and this is at least the third Korg episode so far with scenes filmed there. Its distinctive rock formations have likely become most prominently associated with Star Trek, ever since Kirk encountered the Gorn in the 1967 episode, Arena. The Moving Rock, air date October 26th. Korg and his traveling clan encounter the ocean for the first time and camp at the rocky beach. Gathering firewood, Mara's foot becomes trapped between rocks, and everyone is amazed at the rising tide as they try to free her. They also discover when their meat is brined in the salt water, it makes it much more palatable. The second episode, penned by veteran writer Maurice Tombrigel, also on writing staff for ABC's Devlin. This was toward the end of his 35-year writing career. In the 1940s, he was a contract writer for Universal, then Columbia Pictures, churning out mysteries, cliffhanger serials, and westerns. Transitioning to television, he was a regular writer for Stories of the Century, Adventures of Wild Bill Hickok, The Adventures of Jim Bowie, as well as 30 Hours of the Wonderful World of Disney. Tom Brigell died in 2000 at age 86. The location used for filming this and the following episode was Abalone Cove Shoreline Park, which I was able to track down from clues provided by Charles Morteo. And this is the third of the renamed and duplicated episodes found in those specious online guides under the title, The Big Water. The Beach People, air date November 2nd. With life at the ocean's edge completely new to them, the food-collecting efforts of the Korgs draw the amusement of the local people secretly watching. But the rocky shores are full of danger and the beach people come to the rescue with their prehistoric paddle boards, as first Tane, then Korg, and Bach all need saving. The Korgs then are taught how to glean food from the surf. Written by Peter Dixon and David Dworsky, the writing duo is known for Saturday mornings, Emergency Plus Four, The Secrets of Isis, and Arc Two. Dixon additionally was the co-creator of Canadian 80s series, Danger Bay. Series makeup supervisor Bob Westmoreland appears in front of the camera as the leader of The Beach People. Blue McKenzie was the unnamed young man who saved Tane. He was in a few movies in the 70s and wrote a 1986 film called Club Life. Both Janelle Pransky and Charles Morteo recall eating abalone, fresh caught by crew members, just as depicted on the show. With Abalone Cove now an ecological reserve, disturbing any sea life is prohibited. The Web, air date November 9th. Sleeping in after a night of feasting, 
Korg, Bok, and Tane become trapped in the cave by the very bear they had ousted when they originally took up living in it. Meanwhile, Tor and Ri are having their own crisis as Mara falls down a hillside collecting berries and is injured. Trapped in the rear of the cave, Korg is inspired by a spider web to create a net to distract the bear long enough for them to escape. Written by Willie Gilbert With no explanation, the Korg clan are back in Bronson Canyon in their old cave, Hollywood Hills clearly visible in the background. We're also retreading ideas already done in other episodes, such as Trapped, where they were trapped in the cave, and Magic Claws with the bear hunts. Continuity issues also start to arise as Korg decides to leave the cave the bear is so attached to, but the clan is back in the same cave next week. The Picture Maker, air date November 16th. On a hunt, the men come across a mute boy passed out in a field. After recovering back at the cave, the boy uses a stick to draw pictures in the sand to tell them his name is Moon. Then the men of Moon's clan show up with the information that Moon is fearful to hunt and therefore is a liability to them. Mara encourages Moon's father to consider whether Moon can contribute to the clan in other ways and that his picture-making may be useful in some way. The strange clan then leaves with Moon, his fate uncertain. This was the first of two episodes written by Bernard M. Kahn, also credited as Bernie Kahn, writer on several 1960s sitcoms, including Petticoat Junction, Bewitched, and Get Smart, before writing for Hanna-Barbera in the 1970s. He's also credited for the 1971 Disney film, The Barefoot Executive. With Michael Gutierrez as Moon, who I found no other credits for, and Robert Broyles as Moon's father. Broyles had something of a career as a working actor from the late 1960s up to the mid-90s in about 60 credited roles. The Ancient One, air date November 23rd. Out on a hunt, the men come across an aged man lying in a grave waiting to die. Recognizing him as Lar of the Hill People, Korg takes pity on him and takes him back to the camp. Lar reveals that his advanced age makes him useless to the clan, so he went out to lay down and die. With resources scarce, the additional person to feed causes some concern and a moral dilemma. However, the old man adds value to the clan with his experience, teaching them the art of camouflage when hunting deer. Written by Bernard M. Kahn With Pedro Regas as Lar Regas, born in 1897, was a Greek stage actor who Mary Pickford encouraged to go to Hollywood to be in film. His credits begin in the late 1920s, and his features enabled him to play men of various ethnicities over the decades. Korg was his final screen credit at age 77, dying three months prior to the episode airing. A real tiger was used for a scene where the hunting party was attacked, which surprised me, and what sure looked like real animal carcasses were being carried back from hunts, even though I was assured by Bill Ewing that they were prop creations.
However, we are getting very repetitive with story themes, as this was essentially the same plot as the last episode. The Story of Lumi, air date November 30th. In the middle of a drought, a girl named Lumi from a distant clan shows up in one of Korg's traps. But when her family comes looking for her, they steal water from the Korgs, which threatens to start a war between the two clans. However, when Lumi is trapped on a rock ledge, they put aside their issues while Korg effectively invents a ladder to save her. This was the third and final episode written by Willie Gilbert. Guest star Susan Richardson as Lumi in her first TV credit. Two and a half years later, she would be cast as Susan Bradford on Eight is Enough. Victor Argo was Lumi's father, a longtime character actor with over 100 credits, known for often playing menacing Italian New Yorkers, and was often used by Martin Scorsese in films such as Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, After Hours, and New York Stories. He played the Apostle Peter in 1988's The Last Temptation of Christ. Vasquez Rocks is once again used as a filming location, shot from different angles this time, and the actors climb all over one of the rock formations. Tor's First Hunt, air date December 7th. Korg determines that Tor is now old enough to hunt with the men of the family, and he goes through ceremonial face painting and is given his first spear. During the hunt, they split into two parties, but Korg and Tane, with their kill of a buck deer, are being tracked by a lion. Trapped in a valley, Tane uses a reflective rock to signal the others to come help. Written by Henry Sharp, known for writing The Real McCoys, The Donna Reed Show, The Adams Family, and The Wild Wild West. In the 70s, he started writing for Hanna-Barbera on The Amazing Chan and the Chan Clan, Super Friends, and Valley of the Dinosaurs. He lived to be 106 years old, dying in 2019. The River, air date December 14th. In the wake of a wildfire and drought, the Korg clan can only find a few root plants for food. However, Bach has scouted out a place across a large river where it is green and there is game to be hunted. The clan sets out for this new place, but the deep river presents a challenge, as none of them have learned to swim. Observing a bird on a floating log, Korg gets the idea to use a log to cross, but the hunters cannot balance on a single log. Later, he ties multiple logs together with vines to make a raft large enough for all to cross the river. However, to cross together, Mara must overcome her great fear of water. Written by Fred Freiberger, although all the characters have a superstitious interpretation of the world they inhabit, only Mara is depicted as being fearful of the water. In the episodes where the clan was at the ocean, she claimed the water was a living thing and would not play in the surf as did the others. Of course, she was the one with a foot trapped by a rock with the tide threatening to drown her, so this would only have served to enhance her phobia. This episode was again filmed at the Los Angeles County Arboretum. 
Actor Bill Ewing's parents came to visit the set during filming and didn't even recognize him in makeup and costume until he greeted them. A similar story happened another day, that Ewing happened to have a late call time when he wasn't needed for filming until after lunch, so he got there early. Out of makeup, he said hello to special effects man Bill Ballas, who seemed to ignore him. Later that day, after Ewing was in makeup, Ballas greeted him enthusiastically. It turned out Ballas had never seen him out of makeup before and didn't recognize the actor. Ree and the Wolf Air date December 21st Collecting firewood, Ree finds an injured wolf and secretly begins caring for it, developing a bond with the animal. After time passes and the wolf is discovered, Tane is told to kill it, but he intentionally misses. Later, when hunters from another clan intrude on Korg's territory, the wolf defends the Korg family. Korg decides the wolf deserves to live and should be taken out into the forest. Tomorrow, giving Ree a final day with her friend. Written by Miles Wilder, who served as a creative consultant for the series. Miles was the son of director W. Lee Wilder and the older brother of noted director Billy Wilder. Miles had written for television since the early 1950s and worked on many well-known series over his career, such as Wagon Train, Gomer Pyle, Get Smart, and The Brady Bunch, before beginning to work for Hanna-Barbera in the 1970s. He later was a staff writer on The Dukes of Hazard, which was his last credited work. He died in 2010 at age 77. Guest Peter Dunn was one of the invading hunters. Although IMDb has him listed as a separate person, I believe this to be actor and stuntman Pete Dunn, known for 1950s film and TV, and for playing creatures in Invaders from Mars from 1953 and 1959's The Monster of Piedras Blancas. Given the episode plot, I looked up information on dog domestication. Modern domestic dogs are a subspecies of the gray wolf, and over 400 distinct breeds are currently known, according to Britannica. Just when dogs were first domesticated seems to be a matter of debate, and there may have been two different domestication events, with the lineage of domestic dogs from the European continent not surviving to contribute to current breeds. A study from 2017 timed European dog domestication in the range of 20 to 40,000 years ago. Genomic analysis of different sets of dog remains suggests dogs were also domesticated in Asia some 14,000 years ago. Exactly how this was first done is not known, but one theory is that humans captured wolf pups and kept them as pets. However, the so-called survival of the friendliest hypothesis suggests that wolves largely domesticated themselves among hunter-gatherer people. The thinking here is that wolf species with individuals comfortable enough to get closer to humans and pick up on social cues were rewarded with food scraps and began living near human camps. In any event, Archaeological evidence tells us that five distinct types of dogs existed by the beginning of the Bronze Age, about 4500 BCE. 
They were the Mastiffs, wolf-type dogs, sight hounds, such as the Greyhound, pointing dogs, and herding dogs. Forgotten TV will continue in a moment. Kevin, this is Scott. Kevin, this is Scott. Do you hear me? Over and out. The Star Trek communicators with push-to-talk button. Scott, this is Kevin. My bike is broken. Can you help me? Over. Yes, but send me a signal so I can find you. Star Trek communicators with a range of 1,300 feet. Push-button, twin-warp sound uses one 9-volt battery not included. Star Trek communicators with belt hook, telescoping antenna, and twin warp sound from Ego. It is written, to learn what is good, a thousand days are not enough. To learn what is evil, an hour is too long. Prepare yourself for the future. The greed and finality buried in the hearts of men. You must survive through all of this. Kwai Chang Kane, a peaceful man in a violent world. Kung Fu. Behind the Scenes Korg 70,000 BC was the first completely live-action series produced by Hanna-Barbera, although they had tried before. 1967's We'll Take Manhattan, featuring Dwayne Hickman, TV's Dobie Gillis, was an unsold sitcom pilot for NBC. Hickman played a naive attorney attempting to help a 140-year-old indigenous man regain his family claim to Manhattan Island. The World, Color It Happy, from that same year, featured an animated intro with caricatures of Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera riding in a flying Jetson-style vehicle followed by a Burt Bacharach, Hal David theme sung by Jack Jones. Hey, Joe, how do we open the show? With a look at what's going to be in it. What else? Hang on. Use the world. Color it happy. Happy is a color. If you don't believe me, you can pick a color. And I'll show you how to make your color very, very happy. The proposed series would have been some type of anthology, like Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color, and Woody Allen was the writer of one of the segments. Even though the intro still exists and can be found online, little else is known about this failed pilot which never aired. We got the steam up, you put the dream up, Twig River's calling you, listen my friend, follow the river, that mighty river, there's real adventure round every bend. Hear that whistle blow, see that paddle go, knows what we're heading toward. 1968's The New Adventures of Huckleberry Finn featured three young actors portraying the classic Mark Twain characters in live action filmed against a blue screen interacting with an animated background. Huck, Tom, and Becky found themselves in one animated world after another, being chased by different incarnations of Engine Joe. The show lasted for a single 20-episode season on NBC. The live-action Korg would air during a season where Hanna-Barbera was producing six additional animated series for Saturday morning. For ABC, these were Hong Kong Fooey, Devlin, and These Are the Days. For CBS, Partridge Family 2200 AD, and Valley of the Dinosaurs. 
and for NBC, Wheelie and the Chopper Bunch. ABC's Saturday morning shows were promoted as part of what they called Funshine Saturday. What you see on ABC Saturday mornings, you'll be talking about all weekend. You'll be talking about Hong Kong Fui, a canine crusader who changes from janitor to crime fighter at the close of a drawer. About the new adventures of Gilligan and his shipwrecked friends. About Devlin, three kids out on their own together as a motorcycle stunt team. About Korg, 70,000 BC, a family struggling to survive in prehistoric times. And these are the days about a turn-of-the-century family in rural America. Five bright new shows, part of Funshine Saturday each week. Also this season, 14 after-school specials, continuing in the tradition of the Emmy-winning Rookie of the Year. ABC's new fall 1974 Saturday morning shows had been announced back at the end of March. Revealing their plans for children's TV programming, five new shows were announced. Four of the Saturday shows will be animated cartoons. They are The New Adventures of Gilligan, derived from characters in Gilligan's Island, Devlin, an adventure series about three orphaned youngsters. These are the days, stories of a rural family in the early 1900s, and Kung Fui, a comedy about a meek janitor in a police station. The other new show is Krog, 70,000 B.C., a live-action drama about the Krog family in the Neanderthal era. Did they say Krog? I initially thought it was possible the New York Daily News transposed the letters, misspelling Korg. But also note the title of Kong Fui, which became Hong Kong Fui by Airdate. I couldn't find details on that retitling, but my guess is that the title was just too close to Kung Fu, also airing on ABC at the time. Even though it had been renamed by June, the show continued to be referred to as Kung Fui in some press articles throughout the summer, and even in actual TV listings that fall. One week after Krog was first mentioned in the press, ABC President Walter Schwartz included it in his lengthy statement to a congressional subcommittee hearing being held on violence on television. We have just announced some of our plans for 1974-75 in the children's programming area. And once again, we are increasing the number of quality presentations, which minimize elements of physical jeopardy. Five new series are slated to make their debut in our weekend schedule this September. They include Krog 70,000 B.C., a drama depicting a family struggling for survival in the Neanderthal era. Consultants to this series will be the American Museum of Natural History and the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History. Schwartz went on to describe the other new series and how they added to ABC's commitment on reducing TV violence and highlighting positive social values, something the other two networks also committed to. Even though the show had been renamed by mid-June, the Krog spelling had been released in both AP and UPI articles covering the fall 1974 Saturday morning lineup. This title continued to be used in some press articles, and like Kung Fui, even persisted in some TV listings throughout the entire initial series run. Only Tom Shales mentioned the name change, confirming the show had indeed been initially announced as Krog in a September WAPO article reprinted in several newspapers.
Schwartz's congressional statement again takes us back to that old chestnut that has reared its head several times on this podcast. If you've listened to either Forgotten TV episode on Saturday morning animated spinoffs of live-action shows, the late 1960s boom in what were called the Supers was phenomenally popular. Filmation's The New Adventures of Superman in 1966 kicked off the superhero genre. And soon, Spider-Man, Birdman, the Herculoids, Space Ghost, and Batman filled Saturday morning. However, the loud complaints of groups like Action for Children's Television and the PTA over the concerns of the violence contained on these types of shows triggered the network to kick the Supers off Saturday morning in response. By 1974, even though the TV networks had bent over backwards to virtually eliminate violence and shifted to mild fare with a focus heavy on comedy, music, and mystery, even neutering the Super Friends, see Forgotten TV episode 53, Saturday morning TV was still coming under fire from the critics now calling the lineups everything from inane and banal to overstimulating. In the aforementioned congressional hearing, a Dr. George Gerbner even claimed that television violence had overall increased in the two years since the last subcommittee hearing on the matter. And this was anecdotally confirmed by scores of letters from Mr. and Mrs. America, taking the further step of blaming murders and other violent acts committed by juveniles on violence they had witnessed on TV. In response, all three TV networks went over the Saturday morning schedules with a fine-tooth comb, making sure the kiddies wouldn't see one character punch or shoot another, which meant even Hong Kong Fui would be spending more time lecturing them on buckling their seatbelt or riding a bike helmet than having kung fu fights with criminals. Likewise, it was determined that everyone from Archie on the U.S. of Archie to Rick Marshall on Land of the Lost would impart pro-social messaging during programs. Another promise was that network bumpers would now clearly identify the transition to commercials and back to the regular program. Many of these network bumpers are ingrained in the Gen X collective consciousness. And now, these messages. We'll return after these messages. In addition, for the 1974 fall season, ABC chose to stage an open house with parents, where they were encouraged to sit with their children and view Saturday morning content and other children's programming from all three networks along with them, observing how they react to the programs. No, this wasn't a workshop where focus groups of parents and kids in New York and L.A. were invited to attend. It was more of a gimmick conceived by Squire D. Rushnell, ABC's VP of Children's Programming. As he told reporter Harold Stern, The basic problem with children's programming is that, though children watch it, adults do most of the talking about it. I'm hoping the open house concept will stimulate a lot of mail from parents, expressing confidence, offering suggestions, even condemning, but based on awareness rather than rumor, as is too often true now. 
Realistically, it's too much to expect parents to watch every Saturday, but maybe one Saturday a year, like an open house school week. Promotional booklets with questionnaires were distributed by ABC, along with the booklet Watching Television with Your Children, written by child psychologist author Ida LaShan. The Open House Week for Children's Television was held October 19th through 26th, 1974. The Korg episodes that happened to air during Open House Week? The Eclipse of the Sun, where early man first witnesses the astronomical marvel that is a total solar eclipse, and The Moving Rock, where the Korg clan first encounter the ocean. In fact, Korg actor Jim Melinda was chosen as a network ambassador for the Open House Week and visited with parents at meetings held by local ABC affiliate stations in Colorado Springs, New Orleans, Nashville, Philadelphia, Fort Lauderdale, Atlanta, and Boston. The open house concept was repeated the following year. Among the programming ABC was particularly proud of was their ABC After School Special, beginning its third year. Many Gen Xers recall coming home from school and watching these anthology dramas that occasionally tackled some tough issues. ABC would produce about seven of these a season. The season prior to Korg included Rookie of the Year, with Jodie Foster joining her brother's Little League team. My Dad Lives in a Downtown Hotel, with young Ike Eisenman visiting his separated dad now living apart from the family. And, psst, Hammerman's After You, with Christian Jutner and Lance Kerwin, which dealt with middle school bullying. If you don't recall, the animated character Timer also originated here in the after-school specials, taking youngsters inside the human body. He later appeared in short PSAs about nutrition, such as the one where he hankered for a hunk of cheese. Look, a wagon wheel! ABC was also proud of the Hanna-Barbera produced animated drama, These Are the Days, as commented on by Walter Schwartz in his congressional testimony. These Are the Days dramatically presents the rich quality of American rural life shortly after the turn of the century, as reflected in this portrait of the Day family, who, although facing difficult circumstances, never lose their powerful sense of concern for each other for the family unit as a whole. In terms of both subject matter and treatment, These Are the Days represents, we believe, an important and positive innovation in animated weekend programming. While the premise behind CBS's Valley of the Dinosaurs was somewhat fantastical, it also was intended to be educational and somewhat realistic in its portrayal of a modern family finding themselves in a mysterious land that time forgot style Amazonian valley. Using a physically accurate art style, Valley would explore a variety of scientific principles and their applications as the Butler family introduced concepts such as the lever, siphoning, first aid, and so on to the Neanderthal-like cave people they find in the valley as they made efforts to find their way back to their world. It was interesting that the backstory of the Valley of the Dinosaurs was almost exactly the same as that of Land of the Lost, debuting the same morning over on NBC in the same time slot. 
Land of the Lost, from the creative forces of Sid and Marty Croft and David Gerald. Had the Marshall family also become trapped in the mysterious land after a fateful river raft trip plunged them down a 1,000-foot waterfall and through a time portal. There they find sentient beings such as the humanoid Pacuni, the weird reptilian Sleestack, as well as various dinosaurs and megafauna from Earth's prehistory. And yes, the third prehistoric Saturday morning offering that season was ABC's Korg 70,000 BC. The Cincinnati Enquirer's Steve Hoffman called Korg among the best of the new Saturday programs. Alongside other live-action shows, Land of the Lost, Run Joe Run, and the Harlem Globetrotters' Popcorn Machine. Tom Shales called Korg the most unusual new show and in some ways the most daring. Though the cave folk speak English, it is kept otherwise accurate to what anthropologists know or speculate about prehistoric man. Yes, intent on presenting a scientifically accurate view of Neanderthals, Hanna-Barbera used four science consultants during the production of Korg. Dr. Ian Tattersall, then assistant curator of anthropology for the Museum of Natural History in New York, and now curator emeritus of human origins. He has conducted fieldwork all over the world, notably in Yemen, Vietnam, and Madagascar. His numerous works include Masters of the Planet, The Search for Our Human Origins, published in 2012. Dr. Charles Kraft, then Associate Professor of Anthropology and African Studies at Pasadena's Fuller Theological Seminary, is now Professor Emeritus of Anthropology and Intercultural Communication in the School of Intercultural Studies at said seminary. Dr. Charles Rosaire, then the curator of archaeology at Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History, created their Hall of Latin American Prehistory, which opened in 1966 and closed in 2008. He also did fieldwork at San Miguel Island, once part of a super island off the coast of California. His excavation of the Daisy Cave, one of the oldest caves in western North America, revealed the remains of 26 humans and provided some of the earliest evidence for the human use of boats in the Americas. Dr. Rosaire lived to his late 80s, dying in 2016. Heath Taylor, a former UCLA teacher and expert in anthropology, was the on-set technical advisor. Taylor is the most enigmatic of the science advisors. I found absolutely no information on him, apart from the press releases announcing the series. The creation of Korg is credited to producer Fred Freiberger, a name you may be familiar with. A former New York ad man, Freiberger found himself in the Air Force during World War II, flying bomber missions as a navigator when his B-17 was shot down over Europe in 1943. He spent 22 months as a German prisoner of war in two different POW camps, particularly dangerous for him due to his Jewish ethnicity. He was interred at Stalag Luft III at the time of the infamous Great Escape depicted in that 1963 film.
Repatriated to the U.S., he studied at Pace University's Institute of Film and used his Air Force back paycheck to move to Hollywood, seeking work as a publicist. An industry strike led him to begin writing, making his first sales to Mary Pickford's production company, Comet Productions, whose films were distributed by United Artists. He was one of the writers of 1953's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, adapting a Ray Bradbury story along with Lou Morheim. Working his way into 1950s television, he wrote for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, as well as the Ford Television, Alcoa, Goodyear, and Zane Grey Theaters. Following work on a slew of TV westerns, he became a producer on Ben Casey and the Wild Wild West. Freiberger was then offered a producer role on the first season of Star Trek, which he turned down to take a planned vacation, instead working on ABC Western Iron Horse upon his return. He was then brought on to the third and final season of Star Trek, replacing Gene Kuhn and John Meredith Lucas, who had both served as producers for the second season. Freiberger inherited what was essentially an impossible position with Trek's third season. After the infamous letter-writing campaign orchestrated behind the scenes by creator Gene Roddenberry, NBC renewed the show for a third season, but moved it to a highly undesirable late Friday night time slot, immediately losing 29 affiliate stations who aired their own content during this hour. A frustrated Roddenberry thus stepped back from the day-to-day -day operations of his own creation to work on other projects, leaving this in Freiberger's hands. A budget cut made worse by the increased salaries of the principal cast members and the departure of much of the original writing staff resulted in what most fans consider to be a lackluster third season compared to the first two creating something of a reputation for Freiberger that followed him around for decades. As quoted in the 1996 book Inside Star Trek, he remarked, My ordeal in a German prison camp only lasted two years. My travail with Star Trek has spanned 25 years and still counting. Following Star Trek, Freiberger began to write for Hanna-Barbera on the new Scooby-Doo movies, Josie and the Pussycats in Outer Space, and Super Friends. Unfortunately, I can find no information on the inception and early development of the Korg series, and I've never seen Freiberger mention it in any interviews. Freiberger's post-Korg projects include Space 1999, The Six Million Dollar Man, Beyond Westworld, Big Seamus, Little Seamus, Cagney and Lacey, and Superboy. The day-to-day showrunning producer on Korg was Richard O'Connor, who had previously worked as a producer on a handful of TV movies, including Evil Knievel with Sam Elliott. Following Korg, O'Connor was brought on to produce the second season of NBC's Run Joe Run, also airing on Saturday mornings. Notable television works for the 1980s include Sidney Sheldon's Rage of Angels, Fatal Vision, and epic ABC miniseries, America. Film productions include The Muppet Movie, Raise the Titanic, The Legend of the Lone Ranger, 
and on Golden Pond. On Friday, September 6, 1974, ABC previewed their Saturday morning lineup right before The Six Million Dollar Man. With their Funshine Saturday sneak peek, appropriately hosted by Steve Austin himself. Hey, do you know what's in here? Sure, a lot of terrible stuff that kids will only enjoy. Now, wait a minute. Do you know anything about prehistoric man? Ask me anything. All right. <clears throat> do you know uh, how they hunted or the dangers they faced? Uh, well, now let me think. Funshine, show him a scene from 70,000 B.C. Show him a scene from Korg. From what? Korg. K-O-R-G. Right. R-I-G-H-T. Korg. 70,000 B.C. is an ABC Saturday morning series about a Neanderthal family and its struggle for survival against the tremendous odds of natural catastrophes, wild animals, and hostile cavemen. Their only weapons, primitive spears and throwing stones, and their love for each other, the Cork family triumphs over raging rivers, earthquakes, and rampaging humans. In 70,000 B.C., the Korg family had to be ever on the alert, for they were as often the hunted as the hunters. Korg, 70,000 B.C., is an action-adventure series based on fact and theory about man's mysterious and heroic beginnings. Watch Korg, 70,000 B.C., every Saturday morning on ABC. The following morning... Korg, 70,000 B.C., premiered at 10.30, 9.30 Central, against two other live-action offerings, Shazam! on CBS and Sigmund and the Sea Monsters on NBC. The following year, ABC re-ran Korg on Sunday mornings, starting in February through the end of the summer. Let's take a closer look at our cast members. Jim Melinda was 38 when cast as Korg in the early summer of 1974. Born in New Orleans in 1936, Melinda played right end on the football team at Jefferson High, then went on to attend Tulare University. Prior to his acting career being established, he worked as an airline ticket agent and a firefighter in his hometown of New Orleans. Interested in the performing arts from an early age, he hung around the sets of productions being locally filmed, which included syndicated series NOPD. This is the official emblem of the New Orleans Police Department. You are about to witness a true story of a crime from the official files of the NOPD. The names of all persons actually involved have been changed. Information on this nearly forgotten Dragnet-style half-hour series is very sparse, but it is thought to have been produced from 1955 to 1957 and to have run for about 40 episodes. Although he later would relate this was his first experience on television, there remains no information on how many episodes he may have appeared on. In the mid-1960s, Melinda made his way to Hollywood to pursue an acting career. Before I get into more of his acting credits, a neat little side story. By 1969, Melinda had met and struck up a good friendship with Three Stooges actor Larry Fine, after Melinda's ex-girlfriend began dating Fine. The night they first met, the three of them sat and watched Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon on television. 
Following Larry Fine's stroke in 1970, Melinda visited him daily and helped move him into the detached garage apartment of Fine's daughter and would take him to whatever movie was playing at theaters on Hollywood Boulevard. Melinda, being a struggling actor going on constant auditions, likely raised the eyebrows of Fine's family. As he told the writers of the 2006 book, One Fine Stooge. I spent a lot of time with him before and after the stroke. We were friends. I think some of his grandkids were suspicious that I wanted something more out of him, but I didn't want anything from Larry. We were friends, nothing more. His daughter Phyllis and sister Lila trusted me, and that was that. Melinda remained friends with Larry Fine until his death in 1975. Melinda's early TV credits that are easily referenced begin in 1968 on episodes of It Takes a Thief and Ironside. In addition to a few more episodic TV roles, he appeared in a couple of obscure films. 1972's R-rated hitchhiking exploitation film Dead End Dolls, played at drive-ins in southern states, mainly in Texas and North Carolina. The film had very limited distribution and disappeared after 1978, never being shown on television or released on any home video. Last word was, the 16mm master print was sitting in the garage of a grandson of director William De Diego. Melinda then starred in the art house film Once in 1973. At the 74 Cannes Film Festival, one film received a standing 10-minute ovation. It didn't have a big Hollywood build-up, but when the lights were dimmed, it was a film of such visual beauty and emotional depth that the audience responded in a rare way. The film is Once. Now, Communication Design cordially invites you to see Once, the most unusual film of our time. The 100-minute allegorical film containing no dialogue that received the Auteurs Award at the 1974 Cannes Film Festival was clearly not intended to be a commercial success. It did play in a few art houses back in the States in an attempt to garner Oscar recognition. This film is also believed to never have been broadcast or released on home video. But the Hefner Archive at the USC School of Cinematic Arts came into possession of a film print around 2017. The more widely seen 1974 black exploitation film Black Eye with Fred Williamson and Teresa Graves featured Melinda in a minor role as a drug pusher. In the spring of 1974, his agent sent him to audition for the role of Korg. However, he wasn't holding his breath over being cast. Having auditioned for numerous TV series roles, he never got. Traveling to Cannes for once, he enjoyed the film festival and French locale so much that he considered relocating to Paris to pursue acting in European cinema. While there, his agent called with news. She told me, they want you for the Korg show. You only have a couple of minutes to make up your mind. My whole life passed before my eyes because I had spent 12 years in acting without getting on a series. Figuring he'd have more recognition as the lead on an American TV series than acting in foreign films, he chose to return to Los Angeles for Korg, which quickly went into production. Following Korg, he made about 25 more one-off appearances on film and TV, including 
Kolchak the Night Stalker, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Phoenix, Quincy M.E., Simon and Simon, and Airwolf. He apparently retired from acting after 1990. I found he was active several years ago in his local Nashville chapter of SAG-AFTRA. According to IMDb, he died in 2019 at age 83. However, I can find no obituary or public record of his death. Bill Ewing was 26 years old when cast as Bach, Korg's adult brother. Ewing had studied theater at Los Angeles City College, Cal State, and UCLA. His acting credits begin in the very early 1970s on the Quinn Martin series Dan August and Cannon, as well as Revolutionary War series The Young Rebels. He also got interested in writing while working on the 1971 World War I drama Johnny Got His Gun. Writer and director Dalton Trumbo gave cast members writing exercises where they would write about the life of their character between scenes and read their work every morning. Pursuing screenwriting as well as acting, he and friend Michael Limbeck came up with a show concept for Saturday morning TV based on the ancient German character Till Jugendspiegel from Middle Ages folklore. NBC passed, and Limbeck ended up being cast on the Croft Super Show as Captain Cool of the Captain Cool and the Kongs rock band. Ewing was the last of the actors to be cast for Korg, as another actor had initially been cast, but had to be replaced at the last minute. After Korg, Ewing continued to act in one-off series roles, but also worked behind the scenes, such as on the production team for 1976's King Kong. On the set of King Kong, he became friends with construction coordinator Gary Martin. He continued to pursue screenwriting, and in 1982, along with J.S. Cardone, wrote horror film The Slayer which had the distinction of being one of the video nasties banned in the UK. In 1986, his friend Gary Martin, who had now become a production head at Columbia Pictures, hired him as a production consultant, and Ewing was promoted to the head of the department the following year. His career path at Columbia led to the office of senior vice president after the Sony acquisition. During his time there, he oversaw production of over 100 films over the 1990s, from A League of Their Own and Groundhog Day, all the way to late 90s hits Air Force One and Men in Black, and ending with 2002's Spider-Man, the last film he oversaw. After his 15 years at Sony Columbia, Ewing, a lifelong Christian, left the studio to found Every Tribe Entertainment, with a goal to bring the message of the Bible to life across various media, including film, television, video, and print. One film he co-wrote that you may recognize was 2005's End of the Spear, based on a 1956 trip undertaken by missionaries to evangelize to the Wadani people of eastern Ecuador. Other films produced include 2002's Beyond the Gates of Splendor and Christmas Child in 2004, which Ewing directed. Naomi Pollock, who played Mara, Korg's mate, was 43 during filming of the series. Her television credits prior to Korg include two third-season episodes of Star Trek, 
first playing an unnamed character among the people of the planet Amerind, which were found to be human descendants of North American indigenous peoples in The Paradise Syndrome. Then as Lieutenant Rada, who took over the helm from Lieutenant Sulu in That Which Survives. Lieutenant Rada remains unique in Star Trek as the only person to wear the decorative forehead dot known as a bindi, suggesting a Middle Eastern, likely Indian, ancestry for the character. But get this, Naomi Pollock was married to artist Reginald Pollock, name-dropped by Spock in third season's Requiem for Methuselah, where the immortal Flint had an extensive art collection from Earth. Since her divorce from Pollock, she has gone by the name Naomi Newman and became involved with the Center for the Healing Arts in Los Angeles, becoming a member of senior staff and exploring the psychological and spiritual aspects of healing. She was also a co-founder of A Traveling Jewish Theater, working as a playwright, director, and actress for 34 years. She is still with us, just turning 93 and at least as of a couple years ago, was still active in stage plays that were videotaped and streamed online due to the pandemic. She also co-leads and sings in monthly online services at Hakmet Halev, her synagogue in Berkeley, telling Jay Weekly, As I live my life, I feel so alive, so connected, so in love with life, and with the people I know and the people I don't know. I still feel like a beginner. Christopher Mann played Tane, Korg's older son. Nearly 20 years old during Korg filming, Mann had been acting since at least age 10, when he appeared on For the People with William Shatner. Over the early 1970s, he made appearances in several TV shows of the era, such as Marcus Welby, M.D., Barnaby Jones, The Partridge Family, Emergency, and Shazam. I can find no acting credits for Christopher Mann following Korg, nor was able to conclusively find any information on him since this role. Charles Morteo was 12 when cast as Tor, Korg's younger son and middle child of the clan. As a boy, Charles had taken acting lessons from Lorene Tuttle beginning around age 6. His debut on series television was on a 1970 episode of Julia, which also featured Tuttle as a series regular. A regular on TV commercials of this era, one memorable film shoot was a skateboarding-themed commercial for Pepsi, shot at LA's historic Olvera Street in late summer 1979. The filming coincided with the first-ever visit to the United States of the Dalai Lama who watched the filming and whom Charles was able to meet personally. Answering a casting call for the Korg role, Charles was called back three times to audition, after which he was cast. Toward the end of the series' film shoot, Charles broke his jaw in an accident on a pool diving board. His jaw was wired shut for the final two weeks of production. For these episodes, he was given liquid meals, the crew had to shoot around the fact that his jaw was wired shut, and many of his lines were given to Janelle Pransky. He also recalls passing out at least once due to a combination of the heat and reduced caloric intake. Charles also has no acting credits following Korg, as his life took him away from acting. 
Charles is now a chef and runs an event management service. Janelle Pransky, aged 11 at the time, played Ree, Korg's daughter. She grew up in a family familiar with show business. Her grandfather, Eddie Levesque, had come from Mexico to Los Angeles in 1914, where, according to family history, he was cast by D.W. Griffith in Intolerance. He was then hired by the Keystone Studio as an actor, becoming at age 19 what is believed to be the youngest and last of the original Keystone cops from those silent slapstick films. Janelle's grandmother, Florence Gilbert, was a titles artist for silent films, adding border flourishes to title cards and intertitles that the audiences read dialogue from. Her mother, Carol, also did some acting, appearing uncredited in The Ten Commandments in 1956 and a handful of TV roles in the late 1950s, which included The Bob Cummings Show and Wagon Train. As a girl, Janelle appeared in TV and print ads, which include a memorable Rice Krispies TV commercial in the mid-1960s. In the commercial, actor Johnny Hamer, who later portrayed Staff Sergeant Zelmo Zale on M.A.S.H., was a father with an operatic voice, disappointed that the Rice Krispies box was empty at the family breakfast table. In the commercial, actor Johnny Hamer, who later portrayed Staff Sergeant Zelmo Zale on M.A.S.H., was a father with an operatic voice, disappointed that the Rice Krispies box was empty at the family breakfast table, singing to the melody of Vesti La Juba from 1892 opera Pagliacci. Until I hear snap, crackle, Janelle was the youngest of four children at the table, none of whom spoke any lines. At the end, the mother-in-law arrives with a large bag of Rice Krispies boxes, saving the day. The commercial was part of an ad campaign called Great Moments at Breakfast, and three different opera-based ads were produced. The campaign was the brainchild of legendary ad man Leo Burnett, and in 1997 made Entertainment Weekly's list of the top 50 commercials of all time, placing 10th. It was officially enshrined in pop culture, however, on a 2005 episode of The Simpsons, which not only had Sideshow Bob singing Vesti La Juba, but also Krusty the Clown offering the Rice Krispies version. No! We are out of Rice Krispies. (laughs) Hey, don't blame me. I didn't write this crap. It then surfaced in a 2019 Family Guy parody of Fatal Attraction as part of a recurring joke about music added in post-production. Vesti La Juba itself has been referenced, used, and parodied countless times in pop culture in everything from the 1930s radio drama The Shadow to the Marx Brothers' A Night at the Opera, 1966's Batman, Nickelodeon's Hey Arnold, Seinfeld, and an unforgettable sequence in 1987's The Untouchables. Janelle was just finishing up sixth grade when she was cast as Ree on Korg. 
She actually had to miss her sixth grade graduation due to being fitted for prosthetics for the series. She has one more acting credit following Korg, a minor role in action exploitation film Raw Force from 1982. She then worked behind the scenes as talent coordinator for Mighty Mouse, The New Adventures, in 1987. Following this, she found success as a real estate agent in Bel Air. Our unseen cast member was narrator Burgess Meredith. The Broadway actor made his way into film in the 1930s and transitioned to television in the 1950s. Meredith is well known for his four appearances on The Twilight Zone, for his portrayal of the Penguin on the late 1960s Batman series, and as probe leader VCR Cameron on the 1972 NBC series Search. However, he had become regularly used as a narrator in film and TV, and was chosen to perform this function on Korg. Meredith would conclude episodes with this voiceover. Neanderthal man left no written records of his history, just some bones, tools, and burial mounds. This story is based upon assumptions and theories drawn from those artifacts. The year after Korg went off the air, he made his iconic appearance as boxing coach Mickey on 1976's Rocky, reprising the role for three sequels. Later, we heard him narrate 1983's Twilight Zone the movie, which served as a nod to his classic Twilight Zone roles. Under makeup supervisor Bob Westmoreland, the actor spent anywhere from an hour for the youngest cast members up to two and a half hours in the makeup chair, having facial appliances and false teeth put on to achieve the Neanderthal look. 4.30 a.m. start times were thus common for the adult actors for a crew call time of 7 a.m. for filming. Westmoreland also worked on Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore from 1974, the 1977 TV miniseries How the West Was Won, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, all seven seasons of Hill Street Blues, and forgotten TV favorite, The Popcorn Kid. He was seen once on Korg as the clan leader of the Beach People. Westmoreland sadly left us in 2009 at age 74. All episodes of Korg were helmed by one of two directors. Christian Nyby had been a film editor in the 1940s, working under Howard Hawks on films like To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep. In 1951, Hawks gave him the director's chair for The Thing from Another World. He then entered a career in television direction, used for the mid-1950s sitcoms Private Secretary and It's a Great Life. This was followed by Perry Mason. Rawhide, The FBI, Bonanza, I Spy, Mayberry RFD, and Adam-12. Korg came along toward the end of his career, and he retired soon after. Christian Nyby died in 1993 at age 80. Nyby was the father of Christian I. Nyby II, well known for Battlestar Galactica, BJ and the Bear, and Hill Street Blues. Irving J. Moore had worked as a messenger at Columbia Pictures in the early 1950s, 
and eventually learned the directing trade from Columbia regulars like William Castle, Edward Dimitrik, and Jules White. He then transitioned over to directing television with westerns like Maverick and the crime noir drama Tightrope. Throughout the 1960s, he became a regular director for The Wild Wild West and Gunsmoke. His post-Korg work included Bigfoot and Wild Boy, Eight is Enough, Dynasty, and Dallas. The recurring character of Irving, Nicholas's friend on Eight is Enough, was named after Moore. After Korg, he continued working for 17 years. Irving J. Moore died in 1993 at age 74. Series cinematographer Jeb Golson specialized in underwater and action photography and had worked on Ivan Tor's Flipper and his lesser-known undersea adventure series Primus. Soon after filming wrapped on Korg, Golson, along with filmmaker Larry Sands, were out on a helicopter filming a TV commercial near the site of the new Malonis Dam. On its return from the location, the Bell Ranger helicopter suffered a malfunction of the tail rotor when a coupling failed, causing it to spin and crash just north of the Stanislaus River near Ripon, California. Sands died in the crash, while Golson was pulled from the wreckage by one Stephen Miller, later awarded for his heroism. However, Golson had suffered massive third-degree burns and did not survive his injuries. He was only 40 years old. I couldn't find technical information for the series, but the resolution and film grain present on the DVD lead me to say that Korg was filmed on 16mm as many shows of this era did that had smaller production budgets. Two episodes per week were cranked out over the summer of 1974, filmed entirely on location at spots within the 30-mile zone, used by Union Film Projects to determine per diem rates and driving distances for crew members. The now well-known Bronson Caves served as a main filming location for the series. Located in L.A.'s Griffith Park, the caves are really a man-made tunnel left over from quarry operations in the early 20th century. The largest entrance of the east portal of the caves was used to depict the home of the Korg clan. The west portal, which looks like an artificial tunnel entrance, was what the Batmobile exited from in the 1960s Batman series. IMDb lists 235 productions that have used the Bronson Caves as a filming location over the last 100 years. The 932-acre Vasquez Rocks Natural Area Park was seen in several episodes. Easily identified by its jutting, layered rock formations, its location approximately 25 miles from downtown L.A., has resulted in its use for 484 productions dating back to the 1920s, according to IMDb. The park's famous use on Star Trek has been referenced in other productions such as 1991's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, 1998's Free Enterprise, 2001's Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, the TV series Monk and The Big Bang Theory, and 2011's Paul.
The Los Angeles County Arboretum was also used in some episodes, with its distinctive tall palm trees that line Baldwin Lake clearly visible. IMDb lists 149 productions which have filmed there, including numerous Tarzan films from the 1930s to 1950s, as well as many TV shows from the 60s through the 80s. You may recognize it used to represent Paradise Island on Wonder Woman, and the Arboretum's famous Queen Anne Cottage was Mr. Rourke's house on Fantasy Island. The primitive horn, drum, and string-heavy music theme for Korg is credited to Hoyt Curtin and Paul DeCourt. Curtin was the composer of much of Hanna-Barbera's cartoon library, including The Flintstones, The Jetsons, Super Friends, and more. DeCourt was music supervisor at Hanna-Barbera. The resemblance to Lalo Schifrin's theme for CBS's Planet of the Apes, also debuting that fall, is uncanny. Of course, both themes are callbacks to Jerry Goldsmith's original 1968 score for Planet of the Apes, especially the sequence titled The Hunt. It can also be argued that Planet of the Apes' pop culture influence was responsible for the mid-70s interest in prehistoric themes, culminating in Land of the Lost, Valley of the Dinosaurs, and Korg on Saturday morning with the Apes TV series also in prime time. Like other TV shows of the era, an attempt was made to market Korg in the form of licensed merchandise. These included an Aladdin lunchbox with thermos, retail $4, a Milton Bradley board game, retail $2.50, a coloring book from Southfield Publishing, retail $0.29, cents, a Ben Cooper Halloween costume, sold at Kmart for $2.27, and a nine-issue comic book series by Charlton Comics, released from May 1975 to November 1976. Cover price, 25 cents. The comic started off accurate to the source material, but soon leaned into sci-fi fantasy, with the Korg clan encountering hidden civilizations, giants, dinosaurs, and mythical creatures such as the Yeti and Medusa. A storyline featuring Korg and Bach escaping from Atlantis was never resolved as the title was canceled. The issues were edited by George Wildman and written and drawn by Pat Boyette. Boyette was born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, and began a broadcasting career early as a child actor on a local radio soap opera. As a teenager, he worked his way from office boy to news producer and later radio announcer at station WOAI. Following his military service in World War II, Boyette returned to San Antonio, where he returned to radio and also worked briefly as a newspaper comic strip artist creating the strip Captain Flame for a local newspaper syndicate and drawing the strip in his office in between news broadcasts. When Ad Feature Syndicate was sold to another newspaper service, he was replaced on the comic strip, but by this time was becoming a noted local broadcaster, working at station KONO, hosting the 6 o'clock news. He then transitioned his news broadcast to local CBS affiliate station, Ken's TV, 
and soon realized the anonymity offered by radio was no more. The next day, I caught a bus into town. I kept noticing people were looking at me, and I thought, what in the world are these people looking at? Am I unzipped? What are they looking at? Then it dawned on me. They were looking at me because they had seen me on the box. And from then on, you became, strangely enough, a celebrity of sort. You couldn't go anywhere or do anything without being recognized or catered to. Soon, he was hosting both a weekday morning local talk show and the 10 p.m. news on Kent's TV. During these years, he also found time to make a few local films, writing and directing the 1962 exploitation films The Weird Ones and The Dungeon of Harrow, for which he also provided the artwork for the theatrical one-sheet. A side note, Interiors for Dungeon of Harrow were shot at the warehouse of a local home builder who put up houses in the very neighborhood I live in. Paintings, props, set elements, and filming models used for the movie were made by local woodworker Toy Louie and are still sitting in the same building on Blanco Road used for filming, now serving as decor for Forever Pets. The pet store Louie's family opened there in 1986. Dungeon of Harrow was shown on Kins TV in 1967, retitled Dungeons of Horror. It aired on Kins TV's themed late-night horror movie showcase, Project Terror, itself the brainchild of Pat Boyette. Project Terror, where the scientific and the An unsuccessful attempt to work with cult filmmaker Roger Corman, in addition to the loss of his movie equipment, as well as the master print of The Weird Ones in a fire, led him to exit the movie business. Almost as a lark, a friend then convinced him to mail samples of his artwork to Charlton Comics. After an entire year of not hearing back from them, they brought him on where he first worked on the supernatural suspense title, Shadows from Beyond, in 1966. On his next issue, he and writer Joe Gill created the character The Peacemaker for a backup story in the title Fightin' Five. Billed as the man who loves peace so much he's willing to fight for it, The Peacemaker was given his own title for a brief run, but was later obtained by DC Comics in the 1980s. As a freelance artist, Boyette also worked on Blackhawk for DC Comics, Eerie and Creepy for Warren Publishing, and Weird Suspense for Atlas Comics. He did numerous additional titles for Charlton, including Hanna-Barbera properties such as Korg 70,000 BC. He later did storyboard work for TV animation on The Real Ghostbusters and Defenders of the Earth. Charlton later offered TV tie-ins for The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Emergency, and Space 1999. The multi-talented Pat Boyette left us in 2000, but his work lives on today as his 1966 creation, The Peacemaker, is enjoyed by new audiences as portrayed by John Cena on recent film The Suicide Squad, and subsequent HBO Max series.
The final licensed Korg item was a Viewmaster packet featuring 21 3D still images from two selected episodes, along with a 16-page color illustrated booklet, retailing for $1.75. Viewmaster, a brand dating back to the 1939 World's Fair, was first marketed to adults as an alternative to scenic postcards. Viewmaster reels contained dual stereophonic photos taken with a special two-lensed camera, creating a 3D effect when viewed through the binocular-style viewer that had a click lever to advance the images. These were a modernized version of stereoscopes, which had been a popular parlor pastime dating back to the late 19th century. Viewmaster was used by the U.S. government for military training during World War II, so GIs were quite familiar with the product, which really picked up in popularity in the post-war years. By the 1950s, you could visit the dime store and browse a countertop display, selling a wide variety of single reels that sold for 35 cents that could be flipped through card catalog style, as well as find the new three-reel packets for the retail price of a dollar. Packet titles ranged from generic topics like A Day at the Circus or Mother Goose Rhymes to pictorial reviews of specific U.S. states or regions, as well as international destinations. By the time the 1960s arrived, most major U.S. attractions, such as theme parks, zoos, and destination cities, had their own Viewmaster packet, sold in gift shops alongside postcards and souvenir pennants. Licensed titles tying into popular film and TV were also sold, and over 40 TV properties had Viewmaster releases during the 1970s. The Viewmaster release for Korg created a narrative combining episodes of The Picture Maker and The River, suggesting the possibility that the two episodes were filmed back-to-back, -back, and the Viewmaster photographer was on location for portions of both episodes. Korg 70,000 B.C. was rerun by ABC on Sunday mornings throughout the summer of 1975. Even though there were only 16 episodes, it did go into syndicated reruns for the remainder of the 1970s, often being run on Saturday morning by independent stations. It enjoyed a run by cable network TNT in 1994. Then, the show completely dropped off the map, with hardly a mention for over 15 years. Except for a couple of obscure blog entries and the intro showing up on YouTube. Then, in late 2012, Warner Brothers released the series on DVD as part of their manufacture-on-demand service. However, the most well-remembered live-action properties from 1974's Saturday morning lineup was likely Shazam! and Land of the Lost, both seeing revival efforts in recent years. Meanwhile, Korg remains a relatively obscure Saturday morning show, now approaching 50 years old. The lineup offered by Hanna-Barbera on ABC's 1974 Saturday morning remains rather unique in the types of creative risks being taken at the time by the studio and network. The silliness of Hong Kong Fooey and Gilligan being counterbalanced later in the morning by more serious fare presented in a trio of shows, each telling the tale of a different family. 
First, the adventurous traveling stunt performers of Devlin, then the struggle of Neanderthals simply to survive from one day to the next in a hostile world on Korg, followed by the everyday turn-of-the-century life on These Are the Days. These offerings seemed not to click with Saturday morning viewers. At the conclusion of the 1974-75 season, ABC VP for Children's Programs Squire Rushnell said regarding their Saturday morning shows catered to fit the demands of the anti-violence crusaders, We were taking out the action, taking out the adventure, and ending up with mild action, which the kids just refused to watch. The best example of this is a series of ours called Korg 70,000 BC, which went right into the toilet. CBS's Jerry Golid likewise bemoaned the ratings failures of the U.S. of Archie, commenting, It's not possible to eliminate all violence. You'll end up with a rating of zilch. The following year, Saturday Morning returned to presenting funny animated animals, outlandish live-action sitcoms for kids, and repackaged favorites. And yes, even the Supers returned by 1979. The subject matter of prehistoric man presented in Korg, however, has continued to fascinate fiction writers as they return to this well time and time again for various audiences. Whether it was the animated ABC series Crow in 1993, which saw an 11-year-old Cro-Magnon boy adopted by a Neanderthal tribe, 2013 DreamWorks animation film The Crudes, with its humorous, if inaccurate, look at a prehistoric cave family encountering a homo sapien boy. Or the 2019 drama William, where scientists use recovered DNA to create a viable embryo, thus having to deal with the consequences of birthing a Neanderthal into our modern world. The mysterious world of prehistoric man will undoubtedly continue to be a source for speculation for as long as stories will be told. Coming in 2024 to Forgotten TV. is Earth. Earth, Earth two. 2. The last hurrah of a dying planet or the Noah's Ark of an intergalactic age. Well, hello Larry. You talk to people all day for a living. Travel through time to help history along. Give it a push where it's needed. When the Omni's red, it means history's wrong. Our job is to get everything back on track. Podcasts on The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, Earth 2, Hello Larry, and other short-lived McLean Stevenson shows. 
Misfits of Science, and Voyagers. Green light, kid. We did it. Stay tuned to Forgotten TV in 2024. If you're new here and haven't listened to the other podcasts about Saturday morning TV, may I recommend you dial back your podcast player to episodes 11 and 12 on Saturday Morning Weirdness and episodes 19 and 53 on the animated versions of live action TV shows. Forgotten TV is an independent listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV through Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. Or buy me a coffee by clicking the link right in the show notes. You could also support the show at no cost by taking a moment to leave a review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Forgotten TV is executive produced by Will Welton, Doc Pinko, Joshua Driscoll, K.L. Young, Kenny Siegel, and Tony Cook. With producers Julio Capa, Trevor Pearson, Mark Hadley, John Malcolm, and new producer Tim Yabo. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by Hanna-Barbera, Warner Brothers Television, ABC, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon are affiliate, and as an Amazon associate, Forgotten TV earns royalties from qualifying purchases made. All characters and series mentioned are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips included are for the purposes of historical context, review, commentary, and criticism only, and are not intended to infringe. Additional audio may be used under license by Epidemic Sound. If you need music for your podcast or YouTube channel, check out Epidemic Sound. Link in the show notes. Timeless Expanse by Dream State Logic is used under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, 3.0, unported license. This podcast is copyright 2024 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its patrons, or any future sponsors. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and magazine articles, and high-quality online sources. While reasonable effort has been made to include only factual information, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making some of those audio clips possible. Kino Lorber, The Hollywood Argyles, Scream Factory TV, Andre Alexandruk, Intros and Outros, Warner Archive, the new Howdy Doody Show, Toon Tracker, The House of Dracula Monster Model Museum, Bionic Disco, Retro Kids TV, Comic Guru, Will C. Wilson, Our Nostalgic Memories, My Three Little Critters, Dwayne Pounds, Backyard Sounds, Obsolete Video, Free the Kinescopes, Ruby Pearl, Diane Fan, Hollywood Trailer Music Orchestra, USA TV ads, 
Yellow Guy, Vincent DePlacido, Don Jack, The Rap Sheet, PAX 41 Music Time Machine, Hourly Newscaster, Cult Cinema Classics, Geeky 33.3, Max, 11DB11, D-Day 9876, Wei-Yoon 6. Special thanks to Bill Ewing, Janelle Pransky, and Charles Morteo, who all answered questions, provided memories, production tidbits, and clues that went into the writing and research of this show. Christopher Mann, if you're out there, I'd love to hear your Korg experiences too. I'd like to take this opportunity to also acknowledge the research of Eric Edelbach and John Kenneth Muir. Quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following sources. The books and printed materials. Prehistoric Humans in Film and Television by Michael Klosner. An Archaeological and Paleontological Chronology for Daisy Cave, San Miguel Island, California. Published by Cambridge University Press. The Senate Subcommittee Hearings on Violence on Television, 1974. Short-lived television series, 1948-1978, by Wesley Hyatt. A Cast of Friends, by Bill Hanna. Say, kids, what time is it? Notes from the Peanut Gallery, by Stephen Davis. One Fine Stooge, by Stephen Cox and Jim Terry. Unsold Television Pilots, 1955-1989, by Lee Goldberg. Articles from the following periodicals. Science Magazine, Smithsonian Magazine, Starlog, Issues 39 and 40, Broadcasting, October 21, 1974 and June 30, 1975, and content from the following online sources. Sci-Hi Blog, Natural History Museum, Sapiens.org, PBS NewsHour, Live Science, Britannica, John Kenneth Muir's Reflections on Cult Movies and Classic TV, The Hanna-Barbera Wiki, SF Chronicle, Flashback, Drunk TV, Memory Alpha, USC School of Cinematic Arts, The Classic TV Archive, Temple of Schlock, Phil Cook's The Change Revolution, The Cougar Chat Podcast, Huen Magazine, Jay Weekly, The Charlotte Observer, The Fantasy Inc. Blog, the Charlton Library Blog, The Daily Cartoonist, The Comics Reporter, The California Film Commission, The Arboretum Website, Travels with My Tai Tom, Rip Jagger's Dojo, Tunes of Festology. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links to social media sites. I am your writer, producer, and host, Chris Cooling. And this has been Forgotten TV. Look, a wagon wheel! What the hell is your problem? I just smoked a whole bunch of crack!